From the studios of WBAA Public Radio in West Lafayette, this is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. I'm Stan Dostrevsky. We appreciate you listening to this show on your Indiana Public Broadcasting station. And if ever you'd like to get one of your questions on the program, just email that to ask at WBAA.org. And you can tweet your questions at WBAA News on Twitter. I wanted to start out by talking to you about your time at uh, the late Senator Richard Luger's funeral a week or two ago. You were one of the people who spoke at it. And um, your quote was very interesting to me. You said he made you a better person and you were sure that that was not true only of you among all the people in that audience. Would you expound on that a little? Uh, You know, are there, for instance, rough edges that early 1970s Mitch Daniels going to work for Richard Luger gets smoothed off by working for him? I think he uh, helped me uh, through his example in ways I can enumerate and ways I probably didn't even detect. I used my six minutes. Um, unlike other speakers, I actually spoke, I actually stuck to the recommended time. Um I knew others would talk about his terrific public service, creating the really the foundation for the Indianapolis metro area we know today, all that he did as a senator, make the world better and safer and so forth. So I used my moments to talk about the, him as a person because, um, as I said, if if we're very, very lucky in life, we encounter people who are leading a model life themselves. And I said things like, if he ever uh, had an ill-tempered moment, I didn't see it. If he ever spoke an unkind word about somebody, I didn't hear it. If he ever acted out of uh, selfishness or self-centeredness, I didn't witness it. And I also said that in in the 14 years I worked for him, and I knew him, of course, pretty well for a long time after that, that he always tried to do the right thing. And that just had to rub off on you a little bit. First of all, working for him, you really um, had to attempt to live up to his standards or live by his standards, and you were proud to do that. And so, yes, uh, I, I don't know a better way to become a little better at this business of living than to to uh, serve under and and be in proximity to somebody as extraordinary as he was in his in his personal character and life. And uh, I can just tell you, I was the people that afterwards, so many people said they were thinking much the same thing. So I'm pretty sure I described him accurately. And I just thought, the, as I said, that that dimension of this extraordinary person was every bit as remarkable as the great things he did in public service. It was an interesting study, I thought, in both similarities and contrasts to what was said about Birch Bayh at his funeral, because... Senator Luger uh, was talked about as somebody who was very attentive to the work and always being mindful of how to get the work done for the betterment of people, something that was also said about Senator Bayh. 
And then there was the talk about their their character, about how they went about doing that. You know, you had the talk with Senator By where someone said he knew where every Dairy Queen in Indiana was. There was a lot of really colorful stuff. You had Mitch McConnell walk up and say, for for Senator Luger to do something that he thought was jazzing up his life, it was like buying a new sweater. Um, and so it was this very different way of coming at two people who did the same thing, trying to make the world around them a better place for the people in Indiana and elsewhere. It was an interesting way of thinking about how does someone make a difference and how are the different ways of doing that, I thought. They were each very effective in their own way. It was a um, a, a privilege uh, to be asked to say a few words at each of those uh, ceremonies, which they were different because the people were different, but the... Um, um, both were beautifully organized, and I thought uh, that a lot of very necessary and appropriate things were said. Something, uh, moving on to another issue we didn't get to talk about on last month's show because we ran out of time, was one of the big issues in this year's legislative session was teacher pay. And there was some motion on it this year. There were teachers, though, rallying around the state saying that the formula that was proposed uh, may result in a net loss for teachers, even in places like the West Lafayette schools here near us, which is one of the better school corporations by rating in the state. I wondered how that discussion and the resultant view of education as a possible career choice for the people coming to Purdue, which does have an education department, will affect that program here and on other campuses, do you think? I hope it uh, uh, doesn't have any negative effect. I think that that the um, I'm in favor of higher teacher pay for good teachers. Um, I'm in, I'm in uh, with respect to our students. I'm absolutely in favor of higher teacher pay for good young uh, teachers. One of the worst things, which the reforms of 2011 made some progress in improving, is the discrimination against good young teachers who were told doesn't matter. In the old seniority system, doesn't matter how good you are, you can only earn more money by being around longer. And meanwhile, we're going to keep raising the pay of older teachers who may not be doing as good a job as you are. Um, the other thing is, we continue uh, to uh, see in Indiana 40 cents or something like it of every school dollar going outside the classroom. And uh, what uh, the um, education lobby or the establishment uh, never wants to face up to is if you could make even a tiny improvement. I'm talking a 1% or 2% shifting of public education dollars into the classroom, you can make a massive difference in teacher pay. Now, would you do me a favor and define what you mean by in the classroom in this context? Paying teachers, supplies, uh, anything even remotely related. You can count library services and the rest. But over the years, a growing percentage, now around 40%, gets devoured by administrative costs and, and uh, uh, things that do not relate to the teaching exercise. I mean, just, just do the math. We spend, in some districts of this state, well over $10,000 per student. Average class size is under 20, but just say 20. So you're talking about $250,000 or numbers like that, big six-digit numbers in every school, and you ask, well, the teacher didn't get it. Where'd it go? So um, more dollars to the classroom through uh, that, those, those changes would be very, very valuable and would, could make a very fast difference. In the meantime, we ought to be paying the best teachers substantially more 
but we need and uh, and again the reforms of 2011, which the teachers union continues amazingly to rail against, even though they've led to uh, uh, prompt improvements in student outcomes. Um, would um, uh, 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 when I think about young people at our College of Education, I'm hoping they graduate into a world where if they really do a good job, which I think Purdue College really prepares them for as, good, as well as anybody's, the National Council on Teacher Quality just rated Purdue's education college the best one in the state, and there's something like 40 of them. Young people who come out of there are, going to, are prepared to do a really good job. They should be rewarded for it, not have to sit around for 10 or 15 years waiting to uh, have enough seniority to get paid more. That's why a, a tragically high percentage of young teachers quit within three or four years. Or are forced to become administrators, they feel, to get higher pay. Which is another, yes, you're right, it's another, it's another shame when a, a great teacher, uh, my view has always been, should be paid more than, uh, the great principal should be paid more than anybody except maybe the superintendent. And a great teacher should be paid more than anybody. Uh, except the best principle. So I was looking at Purdue's numbers a little bit uh, over time. So 10 years ago, more than two-thirds of those who were studying education here on the West Lafayette campus were undergrads, and now that's only 40%, which was interesting to me. And so those numbers uh, of people who are, you know, the typical 18 to 22-year-old undergrad has dropped by more than a third over the same time period, even as grad students have helped keep the total number of education studying people about the same over the from, from 10 years ago to now. I, I wonder if you read that the same way I do, that maybe people find it financially remunerative to still become college professors to get an MA or a PhD, but maybe a little less so K-12 over that time. Do you read that similarly? I, I'm not sure, but you could be right. And let's just... Let's just hope that uh, um, w that this will not be the case because there's nothing more valuable in a young life except a, a good home life. There's nothing more valuable than a, than to have a at least a series of excellent teachers in the early years and vice versa. And uh, so we we can't do too much. Again, I'm gonna I'm going to uh, brag on Purdue's College of Education. Uh, I think it's as fine as any in, here in the state. There are a number of them out there that one wishes might just quietly go out of business, let those students come uh, to Purdue and to the, to the best such schools. This is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. You can email your questions to ask at WBAA.org, and we'll get them on next month's show. You can also tweet questions at WBAA News on Twitter. I wanted to talk a little about your commencement address this year. It always seems like you always do a really good job of giving us something to talk about in the show that immediately follows that. Um, this year, you chose to use an interesting word. The word is snowflake. You called it uh, distasteful but descriptive. Um, I'd like to first ask how how you, as as you were thinking about it, decided to use that word and how you how you yourself define it as somebody who's in education. Well, as you pointed out, I didn't make it up. It's in wide parlance, and um, I uh, uh, wanted to suggest that it doesn't apply. I did say it doesn't apply to the students I see at Purdue, and that um, if they're entering a world where there are students for whom, whatever word you choose, that's an accurate description, that um, our students will be at a competitive advantage. And, of course, it was mainly, in the speech was mainly an encouragement, as I said, to, we want them to take on the 
tough jobs and the, and the challenging problems. And when you do that, you're going to run into difficulty and criticism and adversity. And, but that's what we hope we prepared them for, to be leaders. I told them, you want a stress-free life, I'll, it, it's, I, it, there's an easy way to do it. Just lead an inconsequential life. Don't, ta- don't challenge any injustice. Don't try to uh, uh, make any major changes. And then um, you, you can avoid uh, difficulty and so-called adversity. But uh, the young people I see here want to go out and make a difference in the world. And uh, if they have uh, uh, built somehow uh, at home, I hope some, to some extent at Purdue, a little, as people call it now, resilience, um, a little uh, extra determination and self-reliance, it will help them do that. And I consider that one of Purdue's jobs, uh, is to encourage that and do what we can to strengthen it. Should certainly be the job, I think, of any good higher education institution. And uh, I was uh, struck by some of the notes uh, I got and some of the people who came to me who said, uh, have you seen how this word gets used? Because it's not one that's that's typically in, in my vernacular. Um, and they, they said, look, there are some places that you can easily find that this word is attached to other words that we frankly can't say on this radio program. Uh, how much did you look at that? How much did you look at the, the context in which it sometimes gets used before deciding whether to invoke it yourself? Zero. I mean, it's all over the place. Uh, you know, I've seen it a thousand times, and I said it was distasteful. You did. Uh, the uh, and I and I, I raised it to counterpose it to um, what I think I see in Purdue students, what we want to see and hope to see in in Purdue students. So, um, I I've given a lot of speeches, Stan. Uh, I'm not sure when I've had one that's gotten more immediate and profuse. Um, and, uh, um, positive reaction. I'm, I'm, I'm buried in it. I mean, we're, we're responding to emails, phone calls, um, people I met in the parking lot, students I met in the gym. I'm not sure why graduates were in the gym, but some of them were um, last week. And um, so I think that I hope I think people uh, took the positive in, uh, uh, intention and note of encouragement from it, and. Um, that's what I was hoping they would hear. So I wanted to read a couple of responses that I found on what I thought was actually, uh, by Reddit standards anyway, a surprisingly thoughtful Reddit thread of a number of people who identified themselves as students. Um, and so I wanted to read just uh, three of these. Uh, one person says, it's an insult to call someone a snowflake, I think, or it's meant as such. This person says, I am not the safe space, spare my feelings type of snowflake. I'm the blank, and that's blank as a swear word, is on fire type of snowflake. Another person says, the point I got out of Daniel's speech is that we'll have to have grit to really persevere and make an impact in that field, or else we're going to be roadblocked by challenges and opposition. Uh, third one says, he calls it descriptive and implies that it's apt, especially by couching it in language that echoes right-wing attacks against education and young people as a whole. So those, you know, kind of run the gamut of, you know, some people like it, some people not so fond of it. Thinking back on it now, uh, a week after giving the speech or more, would it have been better to just allude to the term rather than use it? Because some people, there's a lot of people out there who are saying we shouldn't have even invoked the term in the first place. Uh, I, they are outnumbered vastly by those who have, were apparently waiting for somebody to make this point. And, um, you know, I, I, some folks, I, uh, some of that, um, the second comment I take is 
some a pretty uh, accurate reflection of things I was trying to say. Um, I just don't get the uh, issue about a single word uh, that uh, I, I could have read long quotes from people describing these so-called fragile uh, students, but when when there's a one-word way uh, to uh, to do it, and then to um, suggest that there are there's a vastly preferable alternative to adopting that sort of mentality. I, I think the point that some people had made was that you, while you were lifting up the Purdue students, were saying there is this other cadre of students who belong in this other camp. Yeah, there is. There's no question that there is. There are books. There are studies. This is there's a I am uh, I didn't say anything here that hasn't been said in much greater length with much with, with deep empirical data that says this is a phenomenon. I said I, I don't pretend to know what's causing it. I listed some of the causes that other people have and scholars have identified. I'm agnostic as to what's causing it. All I know is that students, uh, uh, young people, who have a different outlook and a mentality are going to do better and they're going to make more change uh, for the betterment of society than people who don't. And I wanted to encourage our students um, to uh, be that sort of adult. So this dovetails a little bit with a conversation you had uh, with uh, Dr. Francis Fukuyama on campus, which was, I thought was a really interesting talk about identity politics and how it relates to how we're going to do democracy going forward. And one of the things he said that I thought was interesting was he said much of the identity politics today comes from trying to fight back against social injustices. And so the person on Reddit who identified themselves as that specific type of snowflake speaks to that a little bit. They're trying to say that they want to appropriate that term a little bit so they can get past it and deal with bigger issues. And a lot of the people, uh, it's interesting, in, in multiple contexts have talked about climate change as being the thing that people think aren't isn't getting dealt with. How can Purdue do what Dr. Fukuyama is talking about and kind of widen that description of that definition of identity so that we can widen also the scope of what is generationally or politically possible? The central point of his book, and others have made the same one, uh, is that uh, by uh, so uh, narrowly focusing on, on uh, uh, specific identities or um, claimed identities, um, we are fragmenting as a country. We are making it harder to make social progress. We are fostering division. And his book calls for a, uh, a creedal identity, which is really a return to a, a sense that America and what it stands for, um, the, the freedom of the individual and uh, equality under the law, um, uh, that that should be our identity and that it should transcend all these other um, uh, uh, ethnic or, uh, or behavioral uh, or uh, other preferences that people have. And uh, that's what he was saying. I think it's a, a, a very legitimate point of view. And um, one way or another, one hopes that we'll move past this very divided moment back to a sense we are in this together and that we celebrate all our differences. We're glad that we are that kind of place, but that there is that what unites us is much more important 
than um, uh, and, and, th- and then what divides us, and that that's the identity that we uh, we ought to all embrace. On to other things. Uh, I was at the talk the other day that uh, Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats gave, and uh, I wanted to talk less about his talk as about the event that it was part of, which is part of your Giant Leap series. And one of the things that was one of the key parts of that was talking about artificial intelligence, something that Purdue has done a lot of research in. And this particular day was focused on artificial intelligence as a means of fighting America's enemies, whether it's in cyber warfare or whether it's actually on a battlefield. And so the topic that was being talked about uh, that seems to be getting more and more play is how going forward are we going to decide whether to use this technology as we make it better and better to decide, especially the big question is, will a computer ever decide to take a human life without a human being be a part of that? And the gentleman who spoke just before uh, Director of National Intelligence Coats was somebody who's a former Assistant Secretary of Defense who says, look, it's America's policy that that isn't going to happen, that someone's always going to be involved, but that's not necessarily true of our opponents. Um, how is Purdue going to figure into that, and, and how do you hope to be something of a leader in that part of this space, which has some thorny issues associated with it? You correctly um, identified the reason that this, this was um, such an ideal theme for our Giant Leaps um, Ideas Festival, because it, at its core, it's a technological issue, and so Purdue, and we have people here who are at the forefront of research and development on artificial intelligence of various kinds, including that that I suppose could be used in autonomous weaponry. But it also brings into play all these um, ethical, moral, philosophical questions. Um, and um, and uh, that's why that conference was a perfect uh, example of the kind of of the uh, debates and and uh, uh, examinations that we've been having all year long, um, it is a very scary topic. What the technology is likely to make possible will bring you right to the question you you put, and I hope um, we've had time to think that through in advance. And as you put it, uh, we in the West have will put moral boundaries around this if we're permitted to. But what about people from cultures that don't um, see it that way and have no uh, scruples or would have no scruples about that? And um, uh, if if the job of our future, whoever's in charge of our national security in the future is to keep Americans alive, uh, they may be forced into situations they would rather uh, not. You just saying we, you know, we forswear using uh, weapons in certain ways um, could could uh, expose your fellow citizens to unacceptable dangers. It's a very hard question. So let me ask how that puts pressure on Purdue, because I could see where somebody from, whether it's DARPA on the federal level or some private contractor comes to you and says, President Daniels, I'm going to give you a blank check to develop weaponry that we think is going to better protect us from whoever our adversaries will be. What do you do? It wouldn't be the, whoever's president's decision. It would be the, the researchers in, in keeping with uh, our research organization. Um, but uh, I, hope we, I hope our uh, brilliant uh, research community here will be part of 
of uh, expanding human knowledge in this area because artificial intelligence in most of its applications is going to make life better, uh, safer, um, more productive, and uh, better in, in, in so many ways. The, um, I also, but I also hope that, uh, as was the case last week, there will be people at Purdue, whether they're from the technological or the community or the, or the um, uh, liberal arts and humanities communities who are trying to help uh, society think through where the boundaries are. And there's so many other, other questions. People worry that uh, robotics will take away meaningful, too many meaningful work opportunities. What are we going to do about that? So that's not just a technological question. That's an economics and sociological question. And so, well, this just also... just as just as the excuse me the uh, uh, this this sesquicentennial year was devoted to identifying and talking about subjects like that. I hope that's going to continue on well after the celebration's over. And this also fits into uh, a big investment that the university just got from Saab, which is going to make parts for fighter jets in the aerospace district. And obviously, this is a place that you're trying to build up, and, and it's a bit of a risk. What you have said on this program and elsewhere is you're hoping to build, eventually, a kind of living, working, playing community. You even said on this program, maybe we won't even need cars for the people who work there. So you're hoping to build up, you know, kind of a neighborhood right next to the campus. Um, and so you've got a lot invested in the defense space right now. Well, the Saab announcement's a huge announcement. And yes, it's defense-related, although that's not, uh, to me, the essence of, of why it's so important and exciting. You know, we're, we're talking here just a day after a really very excellent journalistic summary in the local newspaper that... Uh, uh, tallied up and, and analyzed all the new investment, an astonishing, historic amount of investment in greater Lafayette area, most of it driven by uh, the uh, expected recent growth of Purdue, the expected growth of Purdue, and some of it by this innovation district that we're talking about. And you and I um, were discussing, oh, a year or two ago when we embarked on this um, endeavor um, that – uh, the um, the end goal was an overall environment that's really attractive, that's uh, got more options, quality of life options, um, entertainment, uh, uh, retail, and so forth, uh, that uh, will allow us to attract even greater scholars and students in the future, and that... Um, that the driver of that would almost ha would have to be significant private sector investment. And we're starting to see that with Rolls-Royce, with Schweitzer uh, uh, Laboratories, and now with, with Saab. And um, th this is very promising. Uh, if, if, if we're able to attract uh, talented professionals of that kind who want to work with our researchers, who want to hire our students, and by the way, uh, uh, patronize the new stores and restaurants and uh, other uh, – uh, amenities that we imagine uh, coming here, it'll be really good for uh, the uh, greater Lafayette community, surrounding counties, and, uh, of course, a very positive thing for Purdue. Real quick, in just our last 30 seconds, you've got some enrollment numbers for the class that's going to begin here in the fall. Not as big as last year's class, but that would have been hard to do and, and hard to house as well. Looks okay. Looks good. Uh, we aimed at 8,000. 
which would be bigger than all classes except last year's, uh, which uh, uh, exploded on us, as you recall. And uh, we'll, we'll hit it and maybe a little uh, more. And so uh, uh, that's great. It keeps us on a, on a growth track, but one we think is manageable. And um, I'm happy to say that it looks like, yet again, that class will arrive with the highest um, academic preparedness in Purdue history. Just a quick answer, uh, a number answer. What do you want three, five years from now to be the undergraduate population of this university? We have, uh, we'll take it year by year, at the top end of our range, 36,000 undergraduates. 34,000 uh, might be might turn out to be the right target. In either case, much bigger than Purdue's ever been. Okay. Thanks so much for your time as always. This has been Indiana Public Broadcasting's Monthly Conversation with Mitch Daniels. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. Enjoy the rest of your day. Support for the Monthly Conversation with Mitch Daniels comes from Purdue University Press, publishing global scholarship and popular regional work since 1960. Today in print, ebook, and open access formats. More information at thepress.purdue.edu.